Santa Montefiore is the woman's fiction queen, selling six million copies internationally of her heartwarming sagas set in exotic places that have been described as beach read blockbusters. She's also one of the nicest, most natural, unassuming people you could possibly wish to interview. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today on Binge Reading we've got a delightful treat, Santa Montefiore. She's published a book a year since 2001 after initially taking five years to write her first novel and we're now talking about two of her latest books. She's such a prolific author that she's got two out at the same time. An Italian Girl in Brooklyn, a standalone World War II story of loss and restoration and the latest in her hugely popular Irish historical family series The Deverells. That one's called The Distant Shore. But before we get to that, some of our usual housekeeping. We've got our book giveaway for this week, Justice Served. It's a historical and mystery groups giveaway. Authors getting together as usual. Details in the show notes for this episode on the website, The Joys of Binge Reading. And yes, there is one of my books in there as usual. Santa is on the Patreon-only bonus content section of the show too in the Getting to Know You 5 Quickfire Questions. Become a supporter to listen in and help support the show. But if a long-term commitment like that is something you can't face up to at the moment, if you like this episode, why not just buy me a coffee? That's the opportunity you've got at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jenny, and that's J-E-N-N-Y, wheel, like on the car, and then a big kiss, a big X. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jenny Wheel, big kiss. Links to all the things discussed in this episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com, in the show notes for this episode. But now, here's Santa. Hello there, Santa, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you, Jenny, for having me. I'm thrilled to be talking to you today. Look, you're an international best-selling author with an astounding backlist on fiction, and you just keep going. We've got two new releases that we're talking about today. The Distant Shore, which is the fifth installment in the Deverell Family series set in Ireland, and An Italian Girl in Brooklyn, which is a sweeping romantic family star saga. So let's start with An Italian Girl, which I think is just being released pretty soon, isn't it? Yes. It's billed as a spellbinding story of buried secrets and new beginnings. Tell us a little about An Italian Girl. Okay, so originally I wanted to call it Time, Tomatoes and Love, time as in T-I-M-E. And because I wanted a bit of a colourful, quirky title that 
gave a sense of nostalgia of the passing of the years, but also of Italy and the tomatoes and, you know, the sensual side of Italy. And my editor felt that because it was a very powerful story on an emotional level, she thought it was a bit light. So goodness, we had a real headache trying to think of the title. And then a friend of mine said, well, what's it about? And I said, well, it's an Italian girl in Brooklyn. And he said, well, why did you just call it that? So that's how we got the title. But the idea actually came from, I was sat next to a man at dinner about 15 years ago. He, his mother was a young Jewish woman who grew up in Poland and she was in love with her childhood sweetheart. And it was 17 when the war came and they were both sent off to Auschwitz. And her story is so remarkable that at the end, when this wonderful man, Jonas Prince had finished telling me the story, I said to him, I have to write this. And he said, well, you have to wait until my mother's passed away. And the years that followed, it was always in the back of my mind as a fantastic story, but I wasn't sure how I could write about Poland. I also couldn't write about a Jewish woman's experience in Auschwitz, not being Jewish myself. I converted to Judaism when I married my husband, but I'm not Jewish. I couldn't presume to write about such a, you know, emotional and traumatic experience in a situation like that, that I have no experience of myself. So it really was a case of trying to find a way to make it work that I could do it justice, but also some you use a location that I was comfortable with. So to cut a long story short, I was going through my old bookcase and came across a book from university because I studied Italian at university called The Garden of the Vinci Contini by Giorgio Bassani. And it's based in Ferrara in the north of Italy. Um, at the, the time that the war breaks out and it's about a Jewish family. And I thought, oh my God, that's it. I'm going to write about Northern Italy. My heroine will be a Catholic Italian and my hero will be a young Jewish man. And that's really how the story came about. Yes. Now, Evelina, your heroine, is, as you say, a young woman in Italy in 1934. And when the story opens, she's desperately hoping, like they all are, that war is not going to come. And at first, Mussolini makes lots of promises about how they're not going to go to war. But then, of course, we all know now that it did happen. And she sees her neighbours taken away to be interned. And this is really Evelina's story because the war and her experiences in the war break her to the point that after the war ends, she really wants to get away from Italy because it's got so many sad memories for her, doesn't it? So tell us about that step for her. Yes. So she grows up in this old, dilapidated, rambling palace, and it's very isolated. Her father's an anti-fascist scholar who spends all his time in his office studying and writing books, and her mother's a narcissistic bohemian who's only interested in herself. And Evelina and her sister and her little brother are very much left to their own devices and sort of neglected, really. So life is very sheltered, it's very isolated, and it's very sleepy. And then, of course, it opens up when she falls in love with Ezra and suddenly things, she starts to live. And so war comes and snatches this dream away because of course the racial laws come in as prohibited for relationships to happen between Jews and non-Jews. And then the war comes and Ezra joins the partisans, his family are taken away um, and interned and he manages to escape, but he becomes a partisan. And Evelina finds herself drawn into the war and helping the partisans and protecting them on the estate in the old chapel where she takes them food and clothes and things like that. 
At the end of the war, having really lost a great deal, she she has family who live in Brooklyn in America, and she cannot bear to remain in Italy with, as you say, with all the memories of the heartbreak, and she just feels numb inside, and she wants to start again and start a new life. And so she heads off to Brooklyn, and she turns her back on everything. She also turns her back on the magic that she had with with Ezra. They had a wonderfully imaginative relationship. They saw shapes in clouds and it was it was sort of wonderfully innocent and uh, creative and rather magical, I think. And she just turns her back and says, you know, the clouds are just going to be clouds now. Life is never going to be the same again. And yet she finds love in America and throws herself into her new life. But But the past... You know, we can't run away from the past. We can't run away from who we are. We carry that inside us. And it's really a story about the many colors and shades of love. There are many different ways of loving. And we can love more than one person. I don't want to give the story away. Mm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't want to give the story away. But it's, yeah, it's emo- it's emotional. It's about love in its many different guises. And yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's hard to talk about with the rest of the story without giving the plot away. Yes, we don't want to do that at all. But along the way, you create a wonderful sense of place in both of these books and the sights, the sounds, the smells, the sense of the natural environment is very real in both books. And I got the feeling that was probably something that is very important to you personally, that it's something that you notice. And In both the Northern Ireland story and the New York story, there are sort of gardens. And I was amused about the New York gardens because, of course, our idea of New York is that it's all sort of very built up and so forth. But talk a bit about those environments that you're creating and the very tactile sense you bring to the story. So when I was about 25 and I was writing my first novel, Meet Me Under the Ombu Tree, which based in Argentina, I read Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love in the Time of Cholera. And I was very much at a stage where I was writing my first book. I'd written all my life as a hobby, but I'd never written anything that was published. And I was soaking up really how the great writers did it. I was really learning from them, reading the best books. And I really when I read that book, that the way Garcia Marquez creates a sense of place is through the senses, sound, smell, feel. And you can feel that heat on your face and smell the lavender and the gardenia and the almond trees. You can, you know, you can hear the buzzing of the bees in the, yeah, in the jasmine or it was so sensual, that book. I, I really felt I was there. And there was something about that languid siesta time in Latin America where everything's really quiet, but this heavy, damp heat that just settles over the place. And I came away with that very, very valuable piece of knowledge that in order to create a sense of place, you have to make the reader feel that they're there through sound, taste, smell, sight, etc. And so I set about with my first novel, writing about that and thinking, well, when I'm in Argentina, what is it that I smell? I smell the eucalyptus. I can hear the horse's hooves thundering up and down the polo field. I can smell the leather and the horse hair. I can hear the drone of the bees and the lawnmower in the distance. And all of that 
made me feel that I was there. So I've always done that in all my books. And nature is really important to me. I always set my characters in nature because there's always an arc of development. The characters always grow. They start at one point, they end at another point, and they mostly grow on a spiritual level. I very much believe that's what we're all here for, is to grow on a spiritual level. And nature helps me do that because when you're in nature, you're not anywhere else. You're looking and you're feeling and you're listening and you totally are present when you're in nature. It just opens up something inside you and nothing really seems so important. And it also connects me with something greater than myself. So I always set my characters in nature and that's the place where they ask themselves the big questions, any sort of emotional dilemma that they have. It's always worked through in nature. So For me, nature plays a massive part in my own life, also in my books, and my characters are there in every sense because they're seeing and they're feeling and they're touching and they're sniffing. And I hope that my readers feel that they're there with them through that sensual description. That's lovely. You mentioned the spiritual aspect. And in both of these books, there's a pervasive sense of the briefness of life and the closeness of the world after death, particularly probably in the in the distant shore, which we'll get to talk about a little bit more later. But even in this book as well, the thinness of the barrier between the worlds. And I wondered if that also is something that you've given quite a bit of personal thought to, because it comes through that a, l- a little that way, that it is something that means a lot to you. Absolutely. I grew up seeing spirits all the time. So I was a wow. very sensitive child, I'd hear voices and rustlings in my room. I thought, because, you know, I was little and I didn't understand, I thought that these people walking around my room, when I turned the lights on in a panic and I my heart was going really fast, I thought that they'd gone because you know, in the light, I couldn't see them anymore. Now I understand that they're like stars. You know, it's a level of vibration that we can't see with our physical eyes. Some people can, but in the day, you can't see the stars. But at night, there they are. But they don't go in the day, they're still there. And the spirits are like that. People, it always makes me laugh that people go to haunted houses at night to see spirits. Like they come out like they're crabs or something coming out from under the rocks. No, they're always there and they're always around us. But what happens with most people is we go to sleep, we're disturbed on a psychic level because our conscious mind has shut up. And when we open our eyes, we can see with our third eye, really. You're not seeing with your conscious sense like you do in the day. You're on a slightly different plane of awareness. It's a bit like a radio. You tune in. And then as soon as, if I get too excited, because I love seeing spirits, if I get too excited and try and talk to them, I can shift out of that range and then I no longer see them or sense them. Whereas if I just stay very, very calm and just be with them, then I don't shift out. So I grew up like that. And life and death are very much, they're all part of the same thing. I don't see death as an ending at all. It's an ending of a chapter. It's an ending of an experience. We leave our physical body behind and off we go back to where we came from, having hopefully grown and learned a great deal. So yes, the spiritual aspect is important to me. In the first four books, I didn't write about it a great deal. I think I was worried at that stage that I'd be written off as wacky and I wanted to establish myself as a writer first. Then on my fifth book, I think it was around my fifth, sixth book, I thought, okay, I'm 
I'm fine now. I've if, if people don't like that in my books, it doesn't matter. I need to be true to myself. So I, the first book that I really wrote about life after death was The Secrets of the Lighthouse, which is actually narrated by a woman who's passed away and is furious that her husband is falling in love with somebody else and she's not going to leave and she's not going to let it happen. So that was quite fun. So the spiritual side is massively important and is usually a very strong thread through my books. Mm. The Distant Shore, talk a little bit about how it works then, because there are people in that book that aren't alive, but have a voice in the story. And I wondered if that was also something to do with the Irish sensibility as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. So when I wrote my trilogy, which is called The Deverell Chronicles, and it's three books based in Ireland, starts in 1900 and goes up to about the sort of 60s, I think. Ireland really lends itself to the paranormal because there's something very deeply magical about that land. It's, you know, it really is the land of leprechauns and fairies. You feel it there. It's got an ancient, it's got a real ancient energy, a bit like New Zealand, you know, when you look at the Lord of the Rings and everything, which were all filmed there, the land is very similar. It's very mountainous and craggy and rocky and, there's, there's just an ancient, I know the whole world is ancient, but there's something, you really feel it in those two countries. And when I started writing the book, I heard a story about a legend that I used in my book. I changed it a bit. So in my novel, King Charles II gives Barton Deverell land in Ireland, in the southwest of Ireland, as a reward for his loyalty. And because it belongs to the O'Leary people, the O'Leary family are sent off to the bogs. Well, they're not very happy about that. So Maggie O'Leary, who's a very young, beautiful, psychic woman, puts a curse on Barton Deverell and says that every heir will remain in a limbo after death and will not move on into spirit until the land has returned to an O'Leary. So you have, as the series begins in 1900, you have Barton Deverell and his heir of which there are many because this, you know, goes back to 300 years, are stuck in a limbo and they are in the castle and they have their own story. And especially Barton and Maggie O'Leary, who is actually burnt to the stake for witchcraft eventually. The two of them have this story that weaves through the three books. So then taking that on to four, five, and I'm now writing six in the series, the spirit angle is very much something, a theme that continues because Kitty Deverell, who is one one of the three main characters who are born in 1900, and she is the daughter of the castle. And of course, when the distant shores opens, it's the 1980s, she's just died. And the castle has been sold by her half-brother, and it's a hotel, and she's furious, and she's not going to rest until it's returned to the Deverell family. And she is in a limbo because she does not want to move on. And I will add quickly that there are many different types of spirits, but the main spirits that I understand, you have spirits that leave their bodies. Most of the people we love die and move on and then come back anytime and visit us and see us and be around us. But you also have earthbound spirits who are spirits who die often in a very traumatic situation where they can't move on because they they can't see the light. They're confused. They don't know where they are. And they remain in a sort of limbo, which is why you sometimes get trapped spirits that need psychic mediums to help them move on. Mm. So Kitty is an earthbound spirit, but she's not earthbound 
earthbound because she's confused. She's earthbound because she doesn't want to move on. And that's another reason why some spirits don't move on and remain in a house is because they love it. They want to stay. And they're suspicious maybe because their religious beliefs have told them, you know, the devil's work, don't follow the light, it's the devil. So they remain and they're frightened to move on. So there are a lot of reasons why an earthbound spirit might be earthbound. But Kitty is earthbound by choice and she's not going to move. So you have in the distant shores, you have her voice weaving its way through the book and making observations about what is going on in the story. You mentioned that you started that as a trilogy and you're now writing book six. Was that partly because of reader demand that they didn't want the story to end? I would love to say it's reader demand. I do get lots of emails saying, oh, I really love the Devils. I hope it's not the end, yes. uh, which is very encouraging. But actually, it's really me because after the third book, I then wrote a book based in Italy and I didn't think I was going to write any more. And then I came up with an idea and I thought, oh, God, this series isn't over yet. So the secret hours starts at the end of the trilogy in the 80s, but goes back in a dual timeline to the end of the 19th century before, just before the trilogy starts. So it sort of wraps itself nicely around the trilogy with, without disturbing those three books. And then after that, I went and did another two books or something. And then I thought, oh God, I've got a really good idea for another one. So then I wrote <laughs> The Distant Shores, which is, it's related, but it's not, it's, you don't have to read the trilogy. The point of the, well, you can read them all really independently, but I would read the trilogy as a trilogy. And then number four and number five and certainly number six that I'm writing now, you don't have to have read the trilogy to understand or enjoy it. Was there a particular attraction that you had for Ireland? Oh, massively. I wrote uh, Secrets of the Lighthouse, which is the one narrated by a woman in spirit. That was based in Connemara. And after having written so many books based in Latin America, Italy, France, those very sensual, hot countries, there was something really appealing about writing about misty mornings, clinging, you know, the mist clinging to the hills and the snow and the cold and the log fires and things. There was something yummy about that. So after writing that one, when I decided to write a trilogy and I was thinking, where do I where do I set this? What is going to give me enough fodder to create a family saga where I'm not creating all the drama myself? I'm actually setting my characters and my family in a place where drama happens. A bit like, you know, an Italian girl in Brooklyn. The drama's the war. And I just set my characters in the war, in that place and time and see what happens. So... Ireland sprung to mind because, of course, you have the War of Independence. First of all, you have the Anglo-Irish and the Irish, and the Anglo-Irish have been there for sort of four or five hundred years and consider themselves sort of Irish, but they cling to England too. So they're kind of like a hybrid Irish-English, but the national Irish don't like them because they represent England and they have all these beautiful big houses that either were given to them by Cromwell or the land was given to by Cromwell or Charles II, and they built these huge big estates. So the Irish resent them. The Anglo-Irish consider themselves Irish. It's all quite complicated, but it gave me a lot of fodder to work with. Yes. And then you have, you know, the War of Independence, the Civil War happened at, in the 19, you know, 20s, 1920, 21, 22, when it finished, the Civil War, that. And then, of course, you go on and you have the Great Depression. There's a lot, the Second World War, of course, there's a lot that I could use in that place. And I just loved, I loved writing about the magic of it. There's just such a deep deep, ancient, mystical sense that you get yes. from Ireland yeah. that I love. Yeah. yeah. Look, in The Italian Girl, you mention, and I think in the read at the author's notes, that 
it took you five years to write your first book. And now you've written a book a year for about the last 26 years. How did you change from being, you know, taking so long with the first one to becoming a a book machine? I think it's actually quite simple. I think it's time. I think it's time and experience. The first book, I wanted to be a kind of Bridges of Madison County, about two people. And I had the idea and I wrote it. And it was about 40,000 words. And when I found an agent after having been rejected, by the way, by three immediately. The fourth agent came back and said she loved it, but she wanted a bigger story. So with her backing me and saying she loved it, it gave me such confidence. I then added 50,000 words and made it more of a saga. So I write about the main character's parents, and that's in Ireland, funnily enough. And, you know, I go off in tangents. And then when I got a publisher, once again, they wanted me, there are sort of 24 years where these two people are separated and then they get back together in after 24 years and try and recreate their past and recapture their past through an affair because by then they're both married with children and the whole place it's set in Argentina and that 24 years I didn't write about but the publisher wanted me to write about it so then I wrote another 50,000 words so in the end it became about 150,000 words that book is one of my longest now that took time because I had a full-time job. I was working for Theo Fennell, the jeweler. I then worked at Ralph Lauren and I only had weekends and holidays and snatched evenings. Well, when I left my job to write full-time, I wrote The Butterfly Box, my next book, in about four months because I was doing nothing else. I had no children. I wasn't married. I was just sitting at a table with the music on and a packet of chocolate biscuits writing all day. So now I know how to write a book. I've written, as you say, about 26 adult books. I've written four children's books. That's why I specify the adult books. And I know what I'm doing. I know how many words per chapter. I know the feel of the plot, how you set it up, how you then unravel it. I sort of know where I'm going with it. So yes, I think it's experience and time, both of them. I mean, during lockdown, I wrote three books, three extra books during lockdown. So I wrote four books during the lockdown and two of them were really big books. One, another one comes back next year called Wait For Me. That's another story that comes out in January. So I had all the time in the world to sit. Whereas now I've had, you know, life's gone back to normal again. And the sixth Deverell has taken me since September and I'm only finishing it now. Whereas in lockdown, I'd written four books by now. (laughs) You mentioned it really is. You mentioned music playing. What music do you have going? Music is so important to me. And I have to say, I am so grateful for the card I picked. I have these angel cards and I don't really use them very much. I'm a big tarot reader, but I don't really read these angel cards. And I was asking advice about about 15 years ago. It was right at the beginning when I started to write. And I got a card about music and how music can drive you deeper and help you, you know, connect with your emotions and things like that. And so I thought, oh, that's an interesting one. And I did a playlist of really John Barry for Mimi Under the Ombu Tree. It was sort of John Barry out of Africa, that sort of music. Always cinema music because I don't want words to distract me. And oh my goodness, the difference it made having music because A, it shut out the outside world. B, it got me right back in the story. So every morning when I went back to my desk and I put on the music, I was there again in Argentina and I could smell it. And it helped me because it's sad music. I don't listen to, you know, I'm listening to really moving, powerful scores 
which have been written for movies. And it helps me connect with my emotions. So if I write a scene that is about loss and I don't have the music on, I'm sure I could write a pretty good scene. But if I have the music on, oh my goodness, it I go deeper. I write so much better and I feel the emotion too. So I do a playlist for every one of my books and the Irish books of which The Distant Shores is included. I listen to the same music. It's all the Howard Shaw, Lord of the Rings soundtrack. So it's that very Celtic music. It's all the Hobbit music and it's brilliant. I love it. Gorgeous. Do you put your playlists online? I should do. Do you know what? I That's such a good idea. I should, because I have playlists for every single book. Maybe people might like to read the book and listen I, to yeah, me. I reckon the they would. <laughs> might work quite well. <laughs> Look, just turning away from the specific books to talk a little bit about your wider career, is there one thing that you'd see as the, quotes secret of your success? And if so, what would it be? I would say be to be true. I've always been true to myself. I think it's very easy to look at the market and say, okay, thrillers are the big thing. You know, if you want to get into the top 10, it's got to be a thriller. When I was dumped by my previous publisher, I'd written 10 books for Hodder and Stoughton. They hadn't done really, they hadn't done that well. I was being paid much too much because the first one, the Ombutri did very well. And to be honest, they weren't publishing me very well. The title, the covers were just awful. And I was a number one bestseller in Holland and I was doing really well abroad. And so I was thinking, why isn't it working? Anyway, after 10 books with them, they didn't renew my contract. And I met an editor from another publisher. And she said to me, you know, we really want you to change your name, to start again. And we'd like you to write a story based. And she started telling me the plot. She said, now Penny Vincenzi is not really writing anymore. So we want you to write a Penny Vincenzi. And I came away feeling really upset because I thought I can't manufacture a book. It's not what I do. I can do, I do what I do. I can't write to order. And then I was very lucky because Simon & Schuster then picked me up. And with their, the first book I wrote for them was my first top 10 bestseller. That was The House by the Sea. And the rest has been, you know, wonderful. And then they republished my first 10 titles and made a success out of them. So I've been really well published by Simon Schuster for the last 15 years. I'm really grateful, but they've never told me what to do. I've always written what I know I can write. And when people say, oh, but you know, you write all your books in the same genre. Well, of course they're in the same genre because if, you know, if somebody loves what I do, they're going to want more of it. You know, I love Edith Wharton. I love Sarah Waters. There are lots of authors that I love. And when I buy a book of theirs, I don't want a totally different book that sounds like it's from a different author. I like them and I want what they do. Mm. And I, to be honest, I know what I can do and I know what I can't do. And I stick to what I do well and what I love. And would you, I mean, what genre would you say they are? Family sagas or? Yeah, I think they would be, I think family sagas is correct. I think at the heart of all the books is family. Love is massive. Then they have mystery in them to a certain degree. They have secrets that are uncovered. But I think family saga 
with a heavy emphasis, obviously, on love, life. But yes, I think family saga. I mean, you couldn't say they're a thriller. You couldn't say they're crime. And I would never say they were romance because romance is more Mills and Boone, two people who hate each other, love each other, hate each other, love each other, whatever. You know, I would say that they're more, I would say they're more family saga. Look, it would be wonderful to keep talking all day, but we are starting to come to the end of our time together. So let's just cover the part about Santa as reader. I always like to ask our authors about their taste in books because it's nice for our listeners to get some recommendations from you about what they what you think would they'd enjoy. What are you reading at the moment? And are you ever a binge reader yourself? Okay. I read massively when I'm on holiday and I take about, you know, eight books out and I just lie on a beach and just read, read. And but during you know, during when I'm writing, I pretty much read books that inspire me and help me to write the book that I'm writing. So for example, writing the Deverell Chronicles, a book that I would recommend if you love Ireland, Daphne du Maurier's Hungry Hill. It's one of her lesser known titles, but it's fabulous. And it's a family saga based in Ireland. And it starts in about, I think it starts in the mid 1600s even, you know, it's, and it goes, and it's just five generations of a family who have a copper mine and it's brilliant. I mean, Daphne du Maurier is amazing. Yes. So I love reading her. Um, so I've, I've been reading that. I love Edith Wharton. I've said that before, but I adore her. Isabel Allende, I love. There's a really beautiful book, if you love Italy, called The Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnhem. It was made into a quite a weak film with Joan Plowright, who is wonderful actress but the book is really sensational and that's Italy between the wars and it's four women who rent they don't know each other they rent a house in Italy for the whole month of April and it's divine what other books do I love it's difficult when you're always asked but Sarah Waters I think Fingersmith is probably the best plot I have ever read the twist in that plot there are two major ones that will make you gasp so I like (laughs) Jojo Moyes the giver of stars I think it's called she wrote me before you that was made into a movie we actually share the same agent but she's extremely good I'm trying to think who else I love I love lots of books I read lots of books the star of the ocean by Joseph O'Connor I think it's called Joseph O'Connor that was also Ireland and that's brilliant that sounds wonderful Look, looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing that you could change, and this is relating to your creative career, what would it be? Gosh, if one thing I could change. Oh, that's a really difficult question. I don't think, I don't think there's anything that sort of leaps out to me that I would change. You've had the serendipity of finding the right publisher for you, haven't you? So my first publisher was, you know, that it was great at the beginning, but then I think probably if I could go back, I might have changed publishers a bit earlier rather than just plodding along with the same one for 10 years. That probably, I also One thing I would change, actually, is the trilogy was picked up by Working Title to make into a TV series like sort of Downton Abbey, that pole dark, that sort of thing. And they got a very brilliant Irish playwright called Abby Spallon to write the treatment. And when I saw the treatment, it hadn't got the spirits in. So and it was really good. And it was an overview of the first series and everything. But it took out the spirits. And I thought, well, they know what they're doing. That That's their job and their experience. So I said nothing. But I wish I had said, no, if you do it, it's got to include the spirits because nobody picked it up and I got the rights back. 
Because I think without the spirits, it's just another pole dark Downton Abbey based in Southern Ireland. Yes. And it's nothing original. So that, I, I regret that. I wish I'd put my foot down and been a little more. But I'm one of those people that bows to the greater experience. And sometimes actually nobody really knows. And sometimes you just have to say what you think. Yes. Follow your intuition. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I do regret that. Look, what is next for Santa as author? You've mentioned some of these projects you've got on your desk, but over the next 12 months, what can readers expect to see from you? So we have Flappy Investigates, which is the second part of my comedy, which comes out in October. We've got Wait For Me, which is another wartime book, big novel that comes out in January. And then the book that I'm writing now, which is called Eliza of the Lake, but it might change. My editor often changes my titles or certainly suggests that I think of a different one. But Eliza of the Lake will come out next July. And then I think I'm going to take a little break. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I, I think I've been hard at it for like 26 to 30 years. So I think I'm going to have a little break now. Yes, yes. Look, do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, I love interacting with my readers. So if anybody wants to email me, Go onto my website, which is santamontefury.co.uk and write to me there because it actually comes through to my personal email. I don't have a separate work email, so I get everything on my email. And I write back to everybody. You can also sign up to a newsletter that I write every month. Just when I've written one, it comes around again. It's like, oh my God, what am I going to say? But I <laughs> seem to come up with some sort of rubbish. So I write that every month. And I'm also on Twitter at Santa Montefiore. And I'm on Instagram, which is Santa Montefiore official. So I'm I'm pretty, I'm, I'm around, but really I don't do a great deal on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Facebook too, which I think is Santa Montefiore books. But I, do, I don't do much. If you really want to contact me, emails better, and my newsletter. I'd say those two are the, the places where you're going to find me most active. Great, Santa. Look, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Well, Jenny, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great honor for me to talk to you. So, well, I'd say good night to you because I think it's nighttime. We're only just starting here. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you and have a good evening. Thanks so much, my dear. Thank you. Next week on Binge Reading, Kiwi-based mystery author Fiona Leach and her nosy Parker Cornish mystery series. That's what we've got in store. A London police officer, Jodie Parker, switches careers and retreats to a small English village to reinvent herself as a chef. But she can't seem to avoid solving crime. Fiona's latest one in this five-book series is called a Cornish Recipe for Murder, where Jodie enters a great bake-off show, like you see on TV, and somehow gets drawn into a murder around the show. That's Binge Reading next week.